0: from central sauce and the fifth element podcast network this is in search of sauce a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait I am Mickey Hellerback, writer at Central Sauce, and I'm here with my guys, who are also writers at Central Sauce and elsewhere. Uh, Brandon, you wanna introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, what up, what up? Uh, Brandon Hill, thanks for listening, guys. Always a pleasure to have you back. Um, as Mickey said, I'm a writer at Central Sauce, also got a couple bylines at OK Player. Uh, most recently, though, I have wrote um, a little bit about The Weekends' album, Dawn FM, Um, And sort of just about the idea of life after death, afterlife, a bit about reincarnation and love. You can check that out um, in my pinned tweet at Hill on Twitter.
0: Yes, sir. And Tyler, you want to introduce yourself?
2: What up? What up? This is Tyler Jones. Um, I am also occasionally a contributing writer at Central Sauce, podcaster here, Um, writer for the comic, for the Revolt comic A to Z. And and a poet. You can find me at taj.d.poet on Instagram where I post my work. Um, Looking forward to a book near you.
0: Yes, sir. And uh, we are really excited to talk to you about some really amazing pieces and definitely a big range of pieces today um, on the podcast on this nice February day. Uh, We are going to start with an essay, uh, actually an essay by an artist, which is definitely still, in our minds, a, a, a serious piece of journalism, um, and very aligned with a new album drop, uh, funny enough, even though this, this article was written a few months in the past. Uh, it's a piece called Art Ownership and Business, an essay by Saba, and that was for Pigeons and Planes via Complex. Um, the second piece we're going to talk about, Oh, the first piece is going to be from Tyler. And then the second piece from Brandon, we're going to talk about is pink. Sifu is one step ahead. That's an interview with pink. Sifu, uh, conducted and, uh, penned by Thomas Hobbs for crack magazine. And then the third and final, uh, piece we were going to talk about is entitled Sean Bankhead on his creative choreography and working with Cardi B and Normani via The Method on MTV News and that was all conducted by Dometi Pongo and that is my piece that I'm bringing today furthering the video agenda set by Ryan Gore on this podcast um, but before we get into uh, the main part of the podcast uh, guys why don't we start with Tyler this time what have you been listening to
2: uh, so It's fitting that we're starting off with him because I have been listening to Saba's Few Good Things album that just dropped literally this past Friday. Um, If you had his last album that was reconciling reconciling with uh, Death and um, himself, this project is even a further delve into personal introspection of the past four years since his last album, the tours... um, and him just coming to grips with a lot of not only parts of himself, but other people around him as well, and also appreciating what he has. Um, also been once still been listening, rocking The Weeknd, Dawn FM, great album, great, great album. Amber Mark, her debut album, fantastic. Um, go check out Mickey's piece that he did on that, actually. It's amazing. Um, and last but not least once again connected to mickey uh listen to listening to nausea a lot um so it's, it, my music state's been all over the place also with arlo parks their last album and their most recent single but yeah that's a lot of stuff i've been listening to
0: yeah so tyler literally stole every single thing that i've been listening to <laughs> so i don't even need to say anything else and yeah definitely check out my cover story i wrote with amber mark last year if you want more context on her amazing album brandon what have you been listening to
1: Yeah, I've been listening. uh, Actually, I've been a little sleep on the new music. I have not listened to the Saba uh, album yet. But as far as new music goes, uh, the Robert Glasper EP um, is really good and something like I didn't catch um, until pretty recently. Uh, The first song, Black Superhero, with Killer Mike and BJ the Chicago Kid is absolutely fantastic. But other than that, really, um, and Don FM... I've been listening to a lot of, like, older, like, indie Boston rappers, like, because I'm, I'm working on a story that has to do with um, Boston hip-hop. So, like, I, you know, I've been really checking about some of these indie guys, and I want to shout out um, Still Gold, which is S-T-L-G-L-D, um, and their album uh, The New Normal, and which actually was a 2019 album. So it's not, you know, that album, uh, title came before COVID, but they, they have this really, like, cinematic-sounding music. Um, They sort of describe it as hip-hop with, like, punk, rock, and cinematic orchestra elements. So that album is, like, kind of an experience. I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, And then also uh, Van Buren Records, who I think I might have talked about even on this podcast before, um, just still bumping some of their old shit. Really excited about this uh, group from Brockton, Massachusetts, who's, you know, making some waves. So excited to see what else they got coming as well. All
0: right, yeah. Shout out Bean Town. Um, yeah, so that's a uh, let's take this transition to go right into as Tyler already spoke on uh, Saba. Go ahead, Tyler, take it away.
2: So I found this piece just really randomly. I was like, oh, let me let me just like really look through something, and I was like, just happened coincidence that once again his album dropped this past Friday. But art ownership and business an essay by Saba was caught my eye because we, I don't think we've covered, I might be wrong. Someone correct me, please. If I, if I am, but I don't think we have covered a artist essay on here. I don't, um, I don't
1: think so. Cause I remember the J Cole one was the last big one, but I don't think we covered that.
2: Got you. So whenever I do read artist essays, something I always try to find for me to appreciate said piece. Cause I'm like, yeah, sure. It's the artist. It's like probably just you can just say it's one long interview with themselves. But it's like, how candid are they? How honest are they? And more than honest, even though you can say they're hand in hand, how transparent are they with whatever subject they are talking about? And I found this essay by Saba to be the perfect amount of transparent that I needed it to be. Of course... For um, someone who's, I think he's been in the industry now for like, what, 10 years, 10 year plus now to trying to shorten all that into a personal into a personal essay that he's now posting is hard, but for the concept of business and ownership that he did that extremely well, but when it turned to his art, I think it's almost best summed up in the quote in, in the, uh, I have two quotes. That I've, that I summed it up really well. The first quote is at the end of the first paragraph, um, of the article. So I didn't necessarily view my infatuation with music early on as something that would change that change that truth for anybody. I made music out of urgency, to cope and to connect. I never cared if it, if I was talented or not. That ending really hit me for some reason. Because when I listen to his, because I've I read this before I listen to the album, and then I listen to the album again. Yeah, it's he. It, it's most time you can he find himself talking in real time. Even in the article, he's like reflecting in real time as he's trying to discuss what worked for him in business and what didn't. Um, and then another quote that ends the article is fairness is subjective, but ownership is not. I own what I create. That's fair to me. And it really brings the whole thing, not, not only because it's like the last few sentences of the article, but it really does encapsulate everything he was trying to say. And something that I think that was greatly transparent is like, hey, just because this worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Not everyone can be independent so don't take mine as the blueprint but like this take this as what i'm saying as my truth and maybe it can help you um the greater questions that i probably want to ask for y'all throughout throughout this discussion is what did you get out of it mickey i know you're an artist so like how did you what did you take anything from it as well and brandon as a journalist, uh, we're all journalists but like as a journalist from the journalistic side of things like how did you see his structuring of the piece um go
1: I, I took notes on that. So I got you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I
1: can, I can
0: start from the, uh, the first thing you talked about, Tyler. Um, from a, so for those who don't know, I've, uh, firstly, I was trained as an actor. I went to arts high school in Baltimore, went to a, a an acting program at university of Miami, have made my own music, etc. cetera. Um, but in the training process um, of becoming some type of, artist, whatever discipline, anyone who has been in the training process of doing so. And even people who have gone to journalism school, as I, you know, as I view as a form of art or creativity, there's going to be like a guest speaker that'll come in and tell you like what you should do with your career. And it was always dumbfounding to me the more and more. And I've, I feel like I've seen so many guest speakers or even, you know, online, there's a lot of like advice things between people. And so often, um, I've always found it strange that more people didn't do what Saba did in this essay, which is even more so than even Tyler said, which was just being like, you know, kind of mentioning it. He takes a section of two paragraphs to explicitly make sure that, you know, as the reader, that he knows that even though he's about to give some level of what would seem as advice through storytelling, that his way is not the highway. And I can't imagine like as an artist and a creative me ever like expressing any level of this is what I think you should do without making that statement first. I think it's the only responsible way to give what is inherently on the, on some level, even though it's through storytelling, which I like a lot more some level of unsolicited advice. If you're going to give advice that no one was like, Hey, we need you to give advice, please give advice. And even if someone asks directly, I think it is essential to me to be like, this is my story. That's all it is. I am a different person than every single other person who is going to uh, read this. And I I think that's so important and should be a practice that's done way more across the board, especially as we kind of venture into the social media metaverse, whatever you want to call it. The amount of unsolicited advice that I read on a daily basis that I feel like people, especially from people who are higher up in industry, that people are reading and taking in and taking as gospel can be a really dangerous road, especially if you're taking it from someone who inherently is going to have a miles different path than you, even if you're in the same industry. Um, So that was like really like a breath of fresh air while reading this piece to me, honestly, because I feel like it's so rare and far in a way that someone intentionally does that to start off something that is inherently some level of advice
2: i think it's socially responsible it's very socially responsible that they do that first especially if they're gonna be like hey this is my life story let's let's go into it but like yeah I, I totally agree
1: yeah and he even mentions that like there's a certain deal of luck involved in this story as well you know a certain deal of like this isn't a formula for you to follow step, you know, it's not a 10 steps to success book. You know, he, he's very much giving off the feeling that like you can do this, but you also have to figure out a way to like make the chips fall right for you, you know? And this is just, as Mickey said, like just his way of telling it.
0: Yeah. The other thing that, um, since we're going into the other parts of your kind of discussion questions, Tyler, that really, Stood out to me and you kind of when you first talked went and skipped to the ending and kind of that part that resonated with you But there was a a part that kind of precursored that ending that actually Is the line that stuck with me besides the whole like Precursor thing that we just talked about that really stood out to me Is Saba said being able to get paid from what you did four years ago is essentially what retirement is that one really like hit me very hard because um and there's been more of a movement to kind of do this from artists but the i think growing up to me particularly being an artist felt like a separate type of like alternative way to live your life and have a career rather than being an artist being just another career Mm. that you can have that follows the same kind of guidelines towards like getting older and living out your life that essentially being an artist you have to in order to survive in it and to have like a kind of uh not effortless but like a smooth glide into later on in life you have to think of it as You know, maybe someone who gets into working for a city that they live in and kind of over time accumulating this money in order to get retirement and kind of glide off into their later years Um, and him actually taking the time to parallel the way for an artist to have a successful retirement, which is at the end of the day, every single person alive who works wants to have some level of a retirement and doesn't want to be working at 80. Maybe there's some people who do, it's not me. Um, <laughs> but I think like actually paralleling, like, you know, there's a lot of different paths for artists, but the way to get to what at least he is expressing that he wants, which is some level of an entire a retirement, which is the goal that that is the path that makes most sense to him. I thought was really potent.
2: Yeah, art and ownership is is like it's like it's the three words in there, art ownership um, of, of the article. Having your art, making sure you're owning your art at the end of the day, <laughs> to like have the mask. Because like something else that I thought I thought that was brilliant about this article is like, like you were saying before, these cons have been have been. Said reason, especially these past few years, about artists wanting their masters, artists wanting to make sure they have creative control, um business control. It's stuff that has been talked about a lot of these past few years, like the Diddy, the Diddy stuff, like people bringing that up and how artists would be like, "Yo, Diddy, like, where's my masters at?" You talking about ownership and everything. the The way he's discussing it is like, I I guess that once again, like, hit another level to me is like, it felt honest. This felt this essay really did feel like one big but enjoyable TED Talk, right? Whereas like I would love he, this in a, a TED audience. Talk
1: form too, actually. Now I want
2: that. Yeah, it's it's a TED writing. talk. I was an artist recently. Uh Kid Cuddy. Kid Cudi did a um, did a TED Talk. Um but and back to this, and I think that's what it how it connected so well. It was like it wasn't just like I was in his reading his words, I was feeling his words which might sound hippy dippy, but like, it's, it really felt, it sounded like that. He was like, yo, he was standing in front of me with, um, not just mic in hand, just like talking to me, like, Hey, this is what I've gone through. This is like, I'm almost hearing words from like an OG that someone's like, and being as candid and as truthful as possible.
0: Well, that comes from like the intention that was established at the beginning to me, because it's like the, the other thing that kind of builds off of that kind of, I have to make this precursor that this is my path is The the way that Saba delivers this is through storytelling. The the idea of because it's very easy. And again, people do this on Twitter all the time, which is just give the advice of like, this is how you should do it. But the real kind of way for anyone to learn is if you are literally just telling the step by step story of how you did something. Rather than being like, this is what you should do and why, like you're writing, like you're doing kind of just like regular essay writing. The storytelling behind giving advice is actually, the, to me at least, is always the advice that I'm most excited to heed. Is if it's like you're actually hearing the step by step how someone went through something on their personal level, then you're like, oh, maybe I can apply that to this kind of story in my own life and this line of the trajectory of the things that I've gone through. So, yeah, I thought that was really important.
1: Yeah, I want to hear kind of from you guys too, like, you know, obviously we can go through the entire step-by-step process of what happened, um, but, you know, really you should read it for yourself to kind of get that from from Saba's voice, uh, but I want to kind of hear from you guys what you think are, like, you know, one or two of the core, like, central, um, you know, components of what made him successful in the way that he's told his story.
0: Oh. I can go, I mean, I know the number one thing that jumped out at me, two things that jumped out at me, community interacting with fan base, community. Mm. Number one of having the, like, as I'm figuring this out, there are people on the same path as me building me up and we are coming up together and having that support system, especially because it kind of is describing again, how to like move this independent artist career into a way into something that's plausible, that works in the way that other kind of infrastructures work to uplift. And it's like finding that infrastructure in your community is the way to, that he was successful at doing it. And that, that story where he was like, um I did the Chance the Rapper did acid rap at the feature didn't see any improvement by it and I was like somebody's got to be talking about this <laughs> went through tw- went through Twitter and was like I just like favorited everything that was like talking about it on Twitter and then got all of these follows and all of a sudden formed some version of a core fan base and like being the person to initiate the interaction between yourself and your core fan base and how essential that is to get yourself off the ground, I think is hugely important.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even community is right. I, I thought of something different, but community is definitely a big one. Cause it even right at the start of the story, um, he latches on to like that. He had to get together with his friends at like 15 years old to come up with 50 bucks to buy a mic and recording equipment, you know? So even like community from right from the start, was like the component. Uh, but Tyler, I'll go ahead and let you give yours and then I'll, I'll give mine.
2: Um, I guess for me, community, once again, community in a different way as well is... He even brought it up It's like how he had No Name and a few others like recording at his studio. But so you bring it back to the point of like, oh, he invested himself. He was able to like hoard everything at his home studio. But also the community that he built through the scene of Chicago... Um, it seems like that class. Y'all may agree. Uh, y'all may agree. y'all may disagree. But it seems like that class of like Chicago artists—they all know each other very, very well. And beyond just being like, oh, we're collaborators casually and everything like that. But No Name, Sumino, adjacent, because like I think he went to university in Chicago. If I'm mistaken, Saba, Chance, McJenkins—they all seem to know each other and like helped drive and feed each other um in terms of, in different stages of their career um so i feel like yeah, it that was, community uh, itself really helped too
1: it was a nice detail that no name i didn't know this no name actually recorded at saba's like little homebrewed studio like that and that's like one of those tiny details that you know builds that overall picture of community for sure
0: um, I actually think that that's a really good transition into Brandon's piece because I think there's a clear through line of community that that is strewn through Thomas Hobbes' uh, pink seafood piece. But again, just just to to wrap it up, again this piece is art ownership and business and SI SA by Saba uh, for Pidges and Planes, and we will move to Brandon if you would like to introduce your piece.
1: Absolutely. So my piece is Pink Sifu is One Step Ahead by Thomas Hobbs in Crack. Uh, That's January 10th, 2022 piece. So it came out pretty much like right at the top of the year. Uh, It was one of the first big profiles I read this year. Um, Right off the bat, man, I love this first paragraph. Um, You get this just crazy sense of all these things swirling around Sifu. And Hobbs, by putting himself there in the interview... Puts the reader in that same um, context, in that same sense of all these things that are swirling around him. You know, it starts off right away in this messy hotel room. Sifu's pacing around. Hobbs, lets you know, he's got a big show coming out. Um, He talks about, you know, receiving a text from Virgil Abloh, who died in the weeks following the interview. So you get a lot, you know, the sense of all these things swirling. But at the same time, you also see what Sifu is focused on, Right. He's focused on the text from Virgil Abloh. That's a detail. He's focused mainly on the fact that he has kids now that he needs to support. And, you know, it, it uh, in his direct words, he says, I feel like I need to find a way to evolve into a better version of myself. So right off the way, like that statement is sort of always in the back of the piece, right? No matter what is swirling around at all times around Sifu, you get the sense he's always focused on how he can evolve into a better version of himself. So really early on in the piece too, like Hobbs, Hobbs brings the idea of death um, and how close that death is to Sifu and to his music. It's a really nice detail that Sifu adds that all of his album release dates um, are scheduled around either the birth or death of a family member as a way to sort of like channel that energy. So So these two things, right, like are ever present in Sifu's life and his music and present throughout the piece. And then Hobbs brings this one perfect paragraph that describes, I'm going to read it here too, but it describes um, just an overall feel of Sifu's music and also like how Sifu personally feels sort of placed in this like swirling mess that Hobbes is led into. And then this paragraph allows him to um, spin the rest of the piece just telling the story because you now already have all the context and you already have all the feeling you know, that needs to, to contextualize the rest of the piece. So Hobbs writes, Sifu can purr about sex from the back of his throat, like Barry White, as he did on Pops Used to Push That Barry White or Drop a Woozy Trap Sermon called Pray Every Day, where praying is earmarked as something worth bragging about. On FK, he showed he was capable of sparking a punk revolution, letting the spirit of Sid McRae violently take over his body. The latter track is found on Negro, an album that sounds like Bad Brains if they made cloud rap. In Pink Sifu's songs, Transcendence and Chaos usually sit side by side. Such is Sifu's thirst for creating new music that he also has a packed catalog of electric beat tapes released under the moniker IE, a producer alter ego that acts as a love letter to the split personalities present in the work of his hero MF Doom. Sifu tells me that the fluctuating nature of his music Aligns with the black experience in America, and then right away you get a quote from Sifu: "Life is unpredictable here. You need to be a chameleon." I'm trying to bridge, be the bridge between jazz, rap, funk, soul, R and B, psychedelic, and punk. So, in Sifu's own words, Hobbes then ties this sense of all these swirling things and how all of them come through Sifu as part of Sifu into like the core of the story. So, yeah. I got a couple just discussion questions to kind of kick things off. First of all. So um, Sifu says when playing live that he only considers it a success when the audience doesn't know how to feel like, how do you, how do you guys feel about that uh, sort of take on, you know, doing your live shows and doing your live
2: music? Mickey, you want to go first on this one? <laughs> uh,
0: well, I, I think that that, that quote poll is just really interesting because uh, it it almost felt like foreshadowing to me, especially when I went later in the piece because then later on, H- Hobbs has this discussion with Sifu about um, having mainly white audiences that he's uh, performing to in Europe. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't there's connect, a very I didn't connect but those two details, oh yeah but I see, yeah yeah I, I, I thought that, that that was really slick journalism. If if Hobbs is doing that on purpose, I see you, dog. You're killing it. Um, but there was uh and then how the kind of the performance of that album specifically is supposed to be for the kind of community of black people that he's speaking to in the album. So definitely that kind of first tidbit relates to the second one, where if he's going to all of these crowds of white people in Europe, but the music itself is meant for the black community that he wants them to feel uncomfortable when he's pushing the music towards them. I I think that that's like a direct tie. So I think that that's a really, um, in, in that sense, in that, like using that kind of broad idea to bring it to this specific thing, it seems, um, yeah, very intentional and very important.
2: I thought it was awesome. Um, uh, I thought it was smart because something that I'd noticed in the piece as well is like, there always seemed to be top Hobbs was like painting Sifu as like this very contrasting and complex character, right? Like the birth and the birth and death thing, when it comes to like his album releases, the fact that he wants people to feel uncomfortable at shows, I th- and, Mickey, once again, I didn't catch that either, bro, but, like, that was nice. And also, like, Hobbs, if you were doing that on purpose, like, yo, kudos to your pen, bro. Your pen. Um, But, no, for real, it's. I think that was... One, I think that's dope because it also almost takes me back to, like, a statement that No Name said, like, I think a few years ago now. um, How even she felt conflicted about, like, I have a lot of white people at my shows, but, like, if... But are y'all really doing the work? It's like, are, are, are white fans doing the work? Not y'all included, <laughs> love y'all. <laughs> but um, you know, it's like what where are they taking it in like that that complex feeling like cause I don't know if I was like cause obviously as a black person, I'm not sure if I would go to a show by a white artist. And if they're trying to make me feel a complex feeling and race, I'm not sure how I'm gonna feel about that. But like it's it's definitely seems like a interesting take and something that I think is important for black artists who have this type of message.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's great too that like Hobbs Hobbs comes out and like asks him that sort of directly, right? He asks him, you know, how do you feel about um, you know having these these white audiences that can sort of like give into this like punk energy and like sort of he wants to know if that punk energy coming from the crowd is shaped in the same way um, that Sifu intended it in his music, right? And that really brings up you know a larger question about. Um, you know, how much of the music we listen to are we projecting and, you know, interpreting for ourselves as opposed to taking it and receiving it in the way um, that the artist is meant to give it? And one of the questions that came up with that for me sort of is these exact same fans, you know, at these shows um, who can interpret, you know, interpret the song, translate it. They, they take it. They feed it their own energy in their own way. Um how would they feel you know, reading some of the quotes from Sifu directly in this, in this piece? Because the things that he talks about in the piece are so ingrained and so inherent to his music, but the music sort of allows an audience to translate it and you know, take it in their, from their own perspective. Versus when you get an artist talking about something directly, you know, there's less translation happening there. There's less you receiving it in your own way. You know, you're receiving it directly from the artist. So I'm curious, you know, where, you know, how much that disconnect is between, um, a fan or a crowd who's simply just enjoying the music for the performance. And then, you know, actually like get feeding into the same energy that seafood delivers it with.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, first thing that needs to be said is obviously like, uh, uh, a white person cannot directly understand the feeling of the emotion behind what Sifu is saying because we have not lived it. Um, so, but that's it. I think it's like always, no matter what music you're listening to, Brandon, it's always going to be a mix of what putting your own circumstances and like trying to connect it to whatever you're feeling or whatever the artist is saying and taking what it is at face value. It's impossible to not do one or the other so i think like if to kind of answer the other question if they the audience the general audience we're talking about saw some of the quotes i think you'd get a very mixed reaction some people who very much took in exactly what sifu was saying in the music and others who are like i like the rage and didn't get any of the political context and then all of (laughs) a sudden we're like oh i think it would just it would totally depend on the person
2: yeah yeah i think for certain artists it depends right like some i think it, and i say it depends when it comes to like let's say not evil per se but like just art artists is like maybe their lyricism as well um let's say if the artist is like big on metaphors or and stuff where it's not like being directly being said because like even as a poet right it's like you're sometimes trying to give a feeling without explicitly saying it and in the and the actual like line or stanza for the artist if they're trying to like do this in a big metaphor type way then then the then the audience really may not get it or like unless they go to genius or like try to actually like really delve into the lyrics um and they could just be going off that feeling right so it kind of like it could really depend on the artist and that artist's brand of lyricism as well um but for me, for Pink Seafood, since I didn't actually hear any, I haven't heard anything by him until I, uh until I was, until I was reading this. So for me, I was like, had to like, even like check up on the lyrics or check up on the music itself to like, be like, Oh, what, what were they conveying with that?
0: Yeah. I, w- and maybe this can kind of lead, lead into wrapping this up a little bit. Um, It's just kind of funny, like, I was trying to transition from Tyler's piece to Brandon's, and then Brandon, (laughs) the way that you took in the Sifu piece was totally different from, like, the through line that I read when I was... (laughs) Like, I definitely got some of those themes, but the through line to me was this, like, slow expansion of the community into the world at large. Like, it started out very, very... It's not micro to macro, really, but that's just the best terminology I can think of right now, which is like the the direct family unit that that Sifu's contemplating while he's out on tour. And then expands to literally his larger family and talking about family reunions, then to his Mm. direct audience, then to the general world taking in his music over time. And that was that was just another thing I noticed. I don't know if that was intentional by Thomas Hobbes, but that felt. Felt very, um, very organic to kind of just expand the audience with Sifu with the piece, um, and the, even
1: um, well, he even mentions like the other rappers, like the group of other rappers that he works with.
2: I think exactly, There's
0: a... and that community outside of his like kind of family.
2: And I was going to say the same thing too, like how like even though like, his next project is not just a solo project; it is a collaborative project as right. well. So it really did have connection of community, uh, community, what the what community, you know, and what they were saying.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And ownership, um, too, which connects it to the Saba piece. Um, I think he quotes yeah. James Brown in there about owning his own masters, which is like we were saying about, um, you know, this sort of new wave of independent rappers who are focused on, like, financial longevity, right? And not not necessarily, you know, the short-term moves, which was a huge uh, focus of the Saba piece as well, was constantly reinvesting and looking ahead, uh, rather than like getting the quick bag when you can, right?
0: One hundred percent. Okay, so let let's transition into the third piece. I think that was a really great discussion. Um, again, the second piece is Pink Sifu is one step ahead by Thomas Hobbes for Crack Magazine. Uh, Thomas, great work as always. <laughs> Actually, I hadn't. I was kind of trying to figure out how I could actually transition, um, and now I think I finally figured it out. Is we were talking about so much of like kind of Hobbs' interview technique. I think Brandon was mentioning yeah. it over and over again, and uh, the style that really over time kind of allows seafood to really open up. Um, and to me, that really directly connects to this this piece, which is again Sean Bankhead on his creative choreography and working with Cardi B and Normani via the Method, which is a uh, a video journalism series by MTV News that is hosted, and the interviews are done by Domedi Pongo. Um, so before I get into this direct uh, piece, I wanted to talk about how I discovered Domedi Pongo and kind of went down the wormhole of his work. Um, he's an incredible video and interview journalist for MTV News who I funny enough discovered through seeing a red carpet interview on TikTok as I have just started to get ingrained in that. That's the last thing anyone expected me to say. What? I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but funny enough, I was really struck by it and I like watched it like 10 times. Um, but it was a red carpet interview for some t- MTV event with Demetri Pongo and Saweetie. And what I was so struck by was the level of preparation that he took for one artist of like, seemingly like 20 to 30, he probably interviewed on the red carpet. And I feel like I have never been struck by a red carpet interview ever to be like, wow, that was great journalism until I watched Demetri Pongo interview Saweetie. It was this like incredible mix of preparedness, listening and rhythm that even Saweetie, you could tell in the middle of the interview was like taken aback and like, whoa, who is this guy who has done all of this research for this little mini period of time and mm. interview that we have together and who is sequencing these questions in the moment. Moment so easily. And I was like, wow, you know, I feel like there's this ideology for the kind of space that Demetri Pongo is in to not look at it necessarily as legit journalism when <laughs> the way that he does it is as legit as it comes. Um, and that led me to go down the wormhole of his work. And the thing that struck me the most of the kind of range of things that Demetri Pongo does for MTV News was this series, The Method which kind of goes in a chronological order of breaking down the method of artists to kind of create their work, uh, over time. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, mainstream vocalists like her. Um, but the ones that strike me the most, uh, because it kind of aligns with what I, my kind of career path has been organically through journalism, which is highlighting more behind the scenes people. Um, and for Demetri Pongo, it's been like, uh songwriters creative directors and in this case of this particular video choreographers that have really caught me um so yeah so there's a lot of really slick cutting firstly in this interview because it's mtv and they have really amazing budgets first <laughs> and foremost um, but the thing That that really kind of strikes me is his interview ability and storytelling. And I kind of want to cut away just for a second because I just watched that Gordon Parks doc on HBO where it was talked about a lot of the importance of making artistic subjects comfortable and a sort of natural ability to do that being an important part of the job. Um, You can feel throughout this interview to me just how comfortable Sean Bankhead, now an elite choreographer, was and how much that opened him up to tell his story thoroughly and compellingly. And I just want to highlight one moment in this to really to really intro this piece in our discussion about it that grabbed me. And that's when Pongo goes seemingly off the cuff towards the beginning of the interview. Actually, he asked Bankhead about his first audition where he talks about auditioning for Sierra's one, two step video, making it to the last round and not getting it, then auditioning and not Uh, not getting uh, an Usher video because he was better at freestyling than actually doing choreography at the very early parts of his career. Then after he talks a bit more, And um, Pongo follows up with a response to that kind of dichotomy of being a choreographer, but not being very good at choreography. He says, you say you're not good at choreography, but you're a choreographer. How do you take your gift at freestyling and balance it with choreographing a routine? And you can see kind of in the exchange that Pongo did not have that question written Mm. down. He took exactly what he was saying for the previous thing to kind of expand and get a very specific in-depth answer about his craft and niche ability that ends up being what sets him apart from other choreographers and sets up an entire through line of the interview. Um, And that, that was really inspiring to me (laughs) first and foremost. Um, And you can, you can tell though that the ability to be so off the cuff is having such an ingrained knowledge of the subject um that you are able to create your own through line in the moment um and I just thought that that was that was really cool way to do it and then the video continues with very chronological storytelling expanding upon that theme um so yeah that was I guess one of my longer intros recently but uh it's just still really honing in on one specific moment that really struck me about the video um so just generally what what did you guys think and what moments stood out to you why don't we start with Brandon
1: yeah, uh, I mean, well, you honed in right on the thing that I noticed as well, which is um, Pongo's interviewing ability. Um, and I definitely, especially now that I've done a bit more like video production and I've done a few like interviews specifically for video now, um, I'm definitely noticing a little bit more about certain things that are done in video interviewing and video production. Um, and, and one of the things that stood out to me the most about this was that I was unable to tell whether or not this was just a, you know, a start-to-finish interview that they pretty much just sequenced with cuts or if the cuts sort of jumped around at different points in the interview. Um, and I think part of that is just such an, a testament to, like Mickey said, Pongo's ability to um, make the subject feel so completely like comfortable and so conversational um, that it allowed the editor to you know move things around and sort of put them, you know, where it made the most flow for the video or on the other hand, you know, he was so completely comfortable and so completely conversational that there wasn't much resequencing that needed done in the editing and that's just naturally how it flowed. Um and a testament to the quality is not being able to really tell those two things, you know. Like every single portion of it is just in the same sort of uh the same sort of tone and the same sort of like ease and conversationality yeah
0: there was a really one really very intelligent editing decision though at the very beginning of the video someone from the editing team took out a kind of very shortened clip about him uh balancing like a tiktok style of dancing versus like a real choreographed thing Mm. and then let the video expand and let Pongo in that moment that I talked about before kind of set up what would lead into the broader discussion of that. So that was one very slick editing thing, but without Pongo kind of establishing that through line, that editing thing is not as effective, but it was really effective to me. Cause then when they got to that point later on in the video and expanded upon um, Sean Bankhead's really, Very, very uh, intentional way of putting together like TikTok style dances and real choreography. It kind of like opened up this thing that I feel like a lot of people are curious about stylistically. And it made him talk about it like it was a real craft thing rather Mm. than I feel like a lot of kind of people in the general dance sphere feel like incorporating TikTok stuff in is taking away where it really set him up to talk about it as like a part of the craft to the modern way is like, I'm doing real choreography and there's an actual art to fitting this stuff in there with a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry, that's a lot, but Tyler, what did you generally
1: think? Yo, about hold on, I want to expand on that detail real quick because <laughs> ahead, the way, the way he described it is just so cool. Um, so he says that like while putting together these like more complex sets of choreography, um, he always focuses on making, you know, at least one move that looks very, like, simple and very natural and very catchy, you know, whether it's, like, in the midst of, like, all this other stuff with the background dancers, you have uh, just a one quick, super simple, like, hand motion, right? And then that is what gets people into, like, oh, like, I can do that. Like, that looks simple. That looks like I can do that. Um, so then, you know, they get into the dance theirself, and it makes the... The audience as much a part of the feeling of the video and the feeling of the choreography as they are just you know a watcher of the dance moves, which makes so much sense in the TikTok sphere, you know, with music now.
0: Yeah, Tyler, as our resident actual TikTok expert, compared to everyone else on this podcast, what do you think of this
2: video? um i think it was great um to, to quick quick thing addressing what brandon just said about something that sean said was that uh, i think that's i think that's super interesting because a lot of choreographers do that on purpose as so as someone who does watch tiktok a lot and is also into k-pop and all this other stuff i watch me incorporate k-pop in every single episode i promise um but it's something that even k-pop dancers do is like it's called point choreography where it's something that the audience can repeat and it's something that sean is uh, um as a choreographer paid attention to right but but going back to uh domingo's like line of questions i think it's the skill of a journalist to be able to pivot in the moment to almost like it's like I, you it's almost say like journal, journalism or journalists excuse me who do interviews almost have to be the greatest people of improv <laughs> because they have to be able to like catch something on the fly, use whatever like their partners giving them and then change it into something new while still keeping your point, right? Um, yeah. that's something I saw he, he he as you as we've all been saying, he does very very well. Um, because like it's it you can tell when a interviewer or journalist whoever it may be especially like talking about red carpet interviews they have their line of questions they go through them and that's their day especially with uh, with red carpet people who are just really just trying to more ask or reveal reveals on the red carpet than actual like um questions about behind the scenes stuff and doing this behind the scenes artist essentially you, we reveal, it's revealed that they are so important to everything like if, as Sean was saying if you if like I'm so incorporated in the fact because like if the choreography can't work if they're not wearing the right heels or if they're like not or if they're wearing something too big, can the movement flow well this behind the scenes person really influences everything and that's the same for the journalists who will then take what's being said to them in the moment and influencing every and shaping the world around them in the interview. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I think this, that's a really, really good transition Tyler into kind of what I wanted this sort of group discussion about interview technique or how I wanted this to lead into some kind of group discussion about interview technique. Um, and kind of what I do personally, and then hear what you guys do to achieve kind of a similar thing where you have this structure, but you have the ability to kind of freestyle in the moment and go off of something. Um, and to me, I what I it feels like Pongo does, and I'd be super interested to hear how he specifically kind of puts it all together in his head and when he's kind of writing it out and doing research beforehand. But I always try to really focus on my interview questions as if I'm writing a piece with a through line. So like I know what the kind of script like spine of something is before I'm going into it. And then as I'm listening to the person, be able to take out interesting tidbits and lead them back to that spine that I've already decided in my head a little bit. And then sometimes you have to wing it and you kind of have to go off course because they're going totally away from the direction you went. And that's a totally different thing, but it's always, I think, some of my better interviews have happened when I got a little bit lucky, but based on my research of knowing this kind of person's trajectory of having that established spine and being able to come back to home there, but also kind of go off of it based on what they're saying. Um, and so I just sequence my questions in kind of like establishing that through line and then go off when I need to, um, Brandon, why don't we start with you? What do you, what do you do kind of in in order to be able to go off the cuff Um, But also keep center with what you're doing
1: Yeah well it's always when it comes to Off the cuff it's always interesting when You do you know you have some kind of idea Of a spine like that Um, And then early on in the interview you realize Like oh wait this is not what I thought it was you know this is And then you still have to try and like um, Re-contextualize that theme That you thought was there like mid Interview while still sticking to the thing And I think for me that comes from Like the interview subjects that I, that I interview, like I have a genuine like so, so much of a, a, a vested interest in learning about the things that I'm interviewing about. Um, and I, I – I, Mickey definitely knows this. I tend to over-prepare for sure like um, on, on my research and then like on my questions and my details and stuff like that. But I know when an interview is going well um, is when a lot of the follow-up questions that I prepare, I don't ask. Um, because that means that, you know, the conversation has led me in a new direction. And that when I'm hitting my main questions, um, and my follow up question is something that I've latched onto in their answer, rather than something that I have prepared to take somewhere else. Um, So (laughs) I definitely run into a time problem on my interviews, you know, with that technique, it's something I'm still working on. But, you know, a lot of it, like I said, I think it just comes from like, a a genuine interest that goes into the level of background research you do. You're just like, wow, this is fascinating. Look at all the stuff I'm learning. And I can't believe now I get to ask a person to expand on details that don't exist in that research, right? Because that's what the interviewing is, is you're trying to get the details that you don't find online or the details that you don't find in the music. You know, it's being interested in something and then being able to ask someone about it.
0: Brandon get prepped because I'm about to boost your ego a little bit (laughs) (laughs) I just watched this actors to actors interview between uh Bradley Cooper and Mahershala Ali and Mahershala asked Bradley he's like you seem like you're so disciplined in your craft like where does that desire whatever come from and and Bradley Cooper said something to the tune of uh you know like the discipline just comes from like the real love and interest in doing what I'm doing and you're kind of like Ideology, a little bit of like, you know, the, the reason why it like comes together in a certain way. Cause I have such a passion for wanting to know what I'm going to receive from the artist mm. and going into it with that level kind of creates this natural kind of discipline or structure to something. So what I'm trying to say, Brandon is you're the journalism,
1: Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> I love that comparison, but right. yeah, I mean like my favorite interview I've done, like when I interviewed open Mike Eagle, we literally just talked about dark souls, my favorite video game. And then because both of us had sort of this underlying, like, deeper thematic way that we took the game, you know, it naturally just branched into, like, a fantastic conversation that didn't need, you know, firm structure because both people were just invested in the conversation and interested in the topic.
0: Right. Tyler, what about you for kind of interview technique?
2: I really try to make things as comfortable as possible. By it being almost informal as possible, I think as Brandon, who's had to edit my interviews before, I can talk for a long time, and we like me, like me and that person, can go back and forth for a very, very long time. Sometimes where I'm like, oh god, well, I'm just it sounds like I'm hanging up the phone on somebody. Um, I what I usually do to prepare really is like I'll listen to their album, whatever I'll, Let's say if it's an album they're going into right that they're trying to like uh, promote, I listen to the album front to back as many times as I can, and then I'll read. If they've done interviews yet, I'll try to see what questions they haven't been asked. I really try to make sure like, yo, I'm because I hate and I mean hate like because as as we all watch movies, I watch a lot of movie junkets, um, press interviews and stuff like that. And you hear the same questions get asked all the time. And I'm like, I really don't want this artist to feel bored when they're talking to me. So I'll try to make sure. And it's not just like, oh, it's like, what's your favorite? I don't know type of egg or something like that but it's like no it's like something relevant to the art relevant to the music so i'll listen that's why i listen to the album front to back and like might ask them very song specific questions um and might even go step by like i'll even go step by step through the album or their piece of work per se to make sure that they aren't just being like oh it's like they're really they really did hear or listen right or we can have a conversation about it um and that's what i try to do um But, yeah, Brandon being overprepared for an an interview. Oh, God, no. Never heard that before. (laughs) Just Brandon being overprepared. God, that's – where have you heard that? (laughs) Flattered me
1: too much on this episode. But, yeah, like when it comes to, you know, like like Tyler, like you said about not asking questions that they've been asked before, um, there's always one moment in every interview, at least every interview that goes well, where you see – the artist or, you know, not even just always artists, there's lots of great interviews with people that aren't artists, you get the same moment. But there's always that moment where you can tell that the person shifts over from like, oh, like I'm just sitting through this interview to like, oh, like, wait, like this dude knows what he's talking about. Like, I'm now interested in the conversation, right? And you got to kind of be prepared to handle the interview in two parts. The first part is almost entirely shaped on just getting them to that moment. And then the second part is where you bring in your like the questions you really want to hit the stuff you really want to know, but you gotta, you gotta get that moment first. Otherwise, you know, it's just a Q and a.
0: Totally. And I think, I think a good way to wrap this kind of discussion up and bring it back to the piece is uh, at the end of the day, what, what is the most necessary thing in any interview and the reason for all of the prep and the reason for all of the structuring is to get to that moment where, as Brandon's kind of describing, I'll describe a little differently, the artist notices inherently and believes inherently that you care about how they make their art and how they tell their story about how it all came together. And without that, it's really hard to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And I think Dometi Pongo does an excellent job of that with Sean Bankhead and seems to establish Uh, that ideology where Sean Bankhead really believes that he cares about his story from the very beginning of the interview. So it was really cool for me to watch. And again, just to repeat the name of the piece, Sean Bankhead on his creative choreography and working with Cardi B and Normani via the series, the method on MTV news a series that uh, the interviews are done by Dometi Pongo. Um, yeah, so thank you to everyone for listening to our three-part, three-article discussion today. Uh, just to go through the names one more time, Art, Ownership, and Business, an essay by Saba for Pigeons and Planes. Pink Sifu is One Step Ahead by Thomas Hobbs for Crack Magazine, and I will repeat the one I just said. <laughs> Sean Bankhead on his creative choreography and working with Cardi B and Normani, The Method, MTV News, Dometi Pongo. Um, And I just want to say for the end of the episode, as we always say, if you're an independent journalist working for an independent publication, uh, a smaller publication, uh, we would like to as much as we possibly can highlight um, journalists who may not be highlighted elsewhere uh, on this program. So we would love to read your work. Please DM emails that you will find in some of our bios, us your pieces so we can read them and potentially highlight them on this show. Um, and yeah, just, uh, I'm Mickey Hall back again. And, and, and thanks for listening.
1: Yeah. Thanks guys. Brandon Hill. Peace out. This episode of Is Such a Source. Featured Brandon Hill, Tyler Jones, and Mikaela of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Tyler the 5th Podcast Network. The music for the show is functioned by Barstee. Thanks to your records for being use. This has been the Central Source, 5th Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, short records, Central Source, 5th Element. and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time as so we continue our Search for Source.